Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to Numbers chapter 21, Numbers 21, a little later we'll be in John 3 as well, but we're going to begin in Numbers 21, and welcome to week six of our Jesus in the Old Testament series, and yes, as we have come to see, he is there, not just in prophecies, but he is there um, in, in types, he is there presently. And, and the beautiful picture is that Jesus wasn't a last-minute thought. He was not the divine plan B. God foreshadowed Jesus' coming from Genesis all the way to the time of his birth through symbols, through stories, through images, prophetic predictions, and so much more. As we said over and over again, the entire biblical story, the entire biblical account points us to Jesus. And we have seen some amazing pictures of Jesus so far, and today it just only gets better. Although, um, as an intro to the message this morning, I have to admit that this message is also a really tough one for me. For, for you see, I, I suffer from this horrible thing called aphidophobia. don't know if you know what that means, but it, it is the fear of snakes. Um, I hate snakes. I hate them. I mean, I, capital H-A-T-E, hate snakes. I even hate them so much that reading about this event this week made me uncomfortable, uh, sometimes a little squeamish. Yet, apparently, I'm not alone in my fear and hatred of snakes. A recent poll found that 36% of U.S. American adults also are fearful of snakes, especially in light of the fact that 8,000 people in the U.S. every year are bitten by snakes. Thankfully, a very small number of those are, are killed, but that really doesn't help me or help my fear. I remember uh, back in, 2000, I believe 2005, 2006, I was the student pastor here, and we took our youth to Murphy, North Carolina for youth camp, and it was an awesome time. And one of the free days we had, we said, hey, let's Let's go find a swimming hole that we can take our teenagers to. So, of course, we drove around asking people for swimming holes and got all kind of different directions, led us all kind of different places. But finally, we found what we thought was a good swimming hole, and we had to kind of work our way through a little creeks and things. And so we were standing. I had youth with me. We were standing on this rock that had little puddles around us, and we were trying to eventually work a little bit further away um, and to a swimming place that we thought, and as we're sitting there kind of trying to think about our, our next move, and I have teenagers with me, all of a sudden, out of these little puddles and holes on this big rock that we are standing on, snakes begin to, heads begin to pop up like the whack-a-mole. They begin to pop up, and of course, I did what any amazing leader would do. I led the way. I... <laughs> I screamed like a little girl, and I might have pushed a youth or two out of my way as I was making my way um, out of there. Uh, Miss Linus was with us, and she said, I wasn't there, but all I heard was screaming uh, of, of a loud girl, and I said, that was me, and, um, and seeing youth kind of scrambling every which way, trying to get rid or, or get out of that um, situation. I hate snakes. A few um, years ago... Uh, Brother Frank and Miss Carol, as an amazing gift to me, gave me this cup. And if you look on the inside of this cup, there is a snake head. They, they, they know me and love me so well. Um, 
a few years ago or several years ago, there was a movie made called Snakes on a Plane about poisonous snakes on an airplane. And people have asked me, have you seen the movie? Of course I haven't seen the movie. I have enough on my mind when I get on an airplane without having to think about poisonous snakes um, finding their way on there. So now that I've gotten that off my chest and I feel a whole lot better, in fact, that was therapeutic. Only thing that was missing is maybe a couch up here for me to lay on and just share. But now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can draw near to this disturbing yet also beautiful text. Uh, For the incident that we come to today uh, occurs during the Israelites' wilderness wandering. Unlike last week, the water from the rock, which occurred at the beginning of their 40 years, this incident that we come to today occurs at the 40th and final year of the wilderness wandering. And this is... What has been said is the eighth and final grumbling or complaining episode in the lives of the children of Israel, although we know there had to be way more than just eight. And how do I know that? Because we're them. And we complain more um, than eight times a year, let alone 40 years. And so complaining was kind of, as we said last week, they breathed it in and they they spoke it out. So we're going to dive in today and we're going to behold a grumbling people, we're going to behold a just and holy God who must punish sin, but we're also going to show and see a God who shows mercy on those who repent. And ultimately, we're going to see Jesus, how it all points to him. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. We're going to read Numbers 24, verses 4 through 9 together. And it says this, From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray. Fathers, we just think about this, um, Lord, uh, amazing picture today. Maybe even a disturbing picture in some senses. Father, may we understand and see the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for us and being lifted up for us. Lord, just speak to us today in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. And in your name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So as we just read, once again, Israel finds themselves having to take not the shortcut, but the long cut. And I say once again is because 38 years before this, Israel had a chance to go into the promised land. They chose doubt. They chose fear. They chose not to go. So God said, okay, you're going to wander for 40 years. You're going to take a really, really long cut because you wouldn't go in. Well, this time they're having to take another long cut because the king of Edom. So Edom was... Descendants of Esau, so Jacob, Israel, Edom, Esau. The king of Edom would not let Israel pass through. So the Israelites have to 
take a detour. And as they take this detour, it seemed that it was, this was more than the people of Israel could handle. And their irritability reached an all-time high. If things weren't bad enough, they had to endure what they described as worthless food, along with no water. They, they were as good as dead, or, or were they? What about that water from the rock that had provided for them? If God could manage that, I'm pretty sure that God could meet their every need, right? And, and, and the worthless food, oh, oh, you mean the manna that was miraculously provided every single morning for their gathering and for their consumption? There's a lot of descriptive words that could be used for manna, maybe even say redundant every day or un unappreciated, but definitely not worthless. Nothing worthless about that. And as much as I want to criticize the Israelites right now for their complaining, Brothers and sisters, we are often just like them. Amen. We are often just like them. Yet in response to Israel's rebellion, God punished them. Suddenly, poisonous snakes show up in the camp. God didn't even give the customary road trip warning. He didn't even say, don't make me pull this car over. He didn't say, don't make me come back there. No, just immediate judgment in this moment. And this time, the Lord's judgment came in the form of fiery serpents. Now, some people say that means that these serpents were flaming fire, but that's not the picture that most people get. The, the picture is that the bites of these serpents burned like fire. More, more important than the serpent's appearance was their symbolism. Ancient Egyptian texts feature stories of fiery serpents protecting Pharaoh and protecting all around Egypt. They were emblems. So serpents were emblems of, of Egypt. So the people thought, well, and every time things went bad, they said, we want to go back to Egypt. So God sent a symbol of Egypt to show them that it is vain to trust in anything but him. So the pain caused by these serpents' fatal bite provoked the people of Israel to come do their senses. They admitted their sins. They asked Moses to pray for them. And although this is one of 40 different miracles during this exodus and wilderness warning, uh, wondering uh, time, it is especially important because it is a prophecy, it's a foreshadowing, it is a type of what Jesus would do when he came to this earth and what he would do at the cross. So I want to lay before us this morning three pictures, one of judgment, one of mercy, and of course, one of Jesus and who he is. So the first is this, God punishes the sins of his people. God punishes the sins of his people. We can't take this lightly. Verses five and six, you see on the screen, it says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The, the people's rebellion in this instance could be summed up in one word, dissatisfaction. They were dissatisfied. The group of people who had been delivered, miraculously delivered, fed, and even clothed by God now turn on God. In, in essence, they threw a preschooler-like fit um, before God because they no longer appreciated his provision. Just imagine, and some of us, this isn't hard to do, 
a preschooler in their bedroom filled with toys pitching a fit because of the one toy they don't have. And this is exactly what the Israelites are doing in this moment. Yet the, the Israelites go far beyond doubt and dissatisfaction. They accuse God and they accuse Moses of, of treachery. They imagine that God intentionally led them out of Egypt in order just to kill them. That was what they came to the conclusion, that God just led us here just so he could kill them. Therefore, in their minds, the God who had provided for them for 40 years, get this, could no longer be trusted. Just imagine the nonsense of that. In response to their rebellion, again, God acted quickly. He punished them. Suddenly, poisonous snakes were in the camp, biting, infecting, killing. And at this point, I go, I just don't like that picture at all. You know, obviously, the picture is this God did not, would not, does not take sin lightly. You know, many theologians say that not only do these serpents point back to Egypt, they point back even further to the cause of sin. Meaning that not only would these serpents take their minds back to trusting in Egypt, it would take their minds back to the Garden of Eden where Satan came in the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve, where sin entered the world. Listen, I've never been bitten by a venomous snake because it's hard for a snake to bite something that's running from it and screaming loudly as it is retreating. But I can imagine if, if you're bit by a snake, I don't care if it's a black snake and you don't, there's a couple of things that are probably going to come into your mind. Number one, probably, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he makes me lie down in green pastures. Or, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or, this is the big one, Elizabeth, I'm coming. You know, whatever that might look like um, in your, your life, the moment a snake bites you, the moment a poisonous snake bites you, its venom begins to flow through your body to do its damage, perhaps even lethal results. And there isn't much you can do about it. Tim Keller has pointed out that the physical symptoms here are merely a mirror of spiritual symptoms. He says when we're bitten by the dissatisfaction of the heart, a dissatisfaction that is ultimately a rejection of God, a very similar thing happens within our souls, and the ultimate result is death. We think it's not a big deal, but our spiritual condition is just as fatal as this moment was. So because God is committed to redeeming and restoring all things, sin has to be punished. Sin has to be wiped out. And events like this show us the cost or the costly nature of, of sin. The people had to learn, again, that the wages of sin is still death. So this is where we understand, I think in another way, that, that God's punishment isn't just getting even. God's punishment isn't just avenging. God's punishment is restorative, meaning that when God punishes his children, it's not just to punish us, it's to bring us back to him. God punishes us, and you might think, well, my God doesn't punish me, then, then you don't know God. Because according to Hebrews 12, the one whom God loves, he punishes so understand that. The one whom God loves, I know that didn't get an amen from us because we don't like it, but we need it. We need it. And the beautiful thing is God doesn't punish us just to say, well, see, there you go. No, God allows punishment to open our eyes, to draw us back to him. 
to draw us back to him. This is, I pray this has happened in your life. It's happened in mine. This is a sign of us as children of God. But it's been said that repentance is actually a form of sanity. Repentance is a form of sanity. It's a return to God as our sinner. It's a return to sanity by way of repentance and praise. So repentance is a return to sanity. So the people, they acknowledge their sin before Moses, and they say to Moses, would you please pray for us? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Moses and had to deal with them for 40 years, I would probably have said, I'll pray about praying for you. I'll pray about it, see what God tells me, but that's not what Moses does. No, Moses intercedes, and God responds, yet in an unexpected way. God did not remove the snakes from the camp, but he did provide a way for the Israelites in this moment to be saved. So first, God punishes the sins of his people. But secondly, God provides a cure for his people. God provides a cure for his people. In verses 8 and 9, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. Everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So although the people came to Moses and said, please pray to God that he will take these snakes away from us, that's not what God did. God didn't just remove the snakes. He let the snakes stay. Yet in an act of divine irony, God instructed Moses to make a serpent of bronze, place it on a pole. If you were bitten, you look in faith to that bronze serpent and you are healed. Or in a different way, or maybe say it differently, God chose the symbol of their punishment for sin, which was a snake, as the instrument of their mercy, or his mercy. So God chose the same thing that was inflicting pain upon them to be a picture of mercy for them. You think about a bronze serpent. Bronze in the Old Testament days became a symbol for the judgment of God. Outside the temple courts was a bronze altar where judgment took place, where the blood of animals was was spilt. And the symbol here, the symbol of their suffering would become the the focus of their faith. They, They would be saved by looking at the embodiment of what actually had bitten them. And the word looked Here in Hebrew does not mean a casual gaze. It doesn't mean just glance upon the serpent. No, it means fixing your gaze upon it, looking intently. So the idea is that Israelites needed to look intently upon, in faith upon this this symbol. And it, it seems so simple, maybe even too simple. Look to something and you're healed physically, yet yet. This doesn't just seem simple, it seems ridiculous. An inanimate object can't heal. Scientifically speaking, it doesn't make sense. Looking at a bronze serpent on a pole cannot stop deadly venom from flowing through your veins. Unless God says it can. And if God says it can, then it does. God attached his promises to this bronze serpent so that if the Israelites looked in faith upon it, they would receive the healing that God provided through it. 
Now, now Gordon Wenham, an Old Testament scholar, noted that the remedy here is in line with other like it in the Old Testament. He writes, for example, the purification requirements for those who are made unclean by blood involve blood being spilled through animal sacrifice. Also, the ashes of a dead heifer were mixed in water used to cleanse those who had touched a dead body. So this makes sense. And he says that those inflamed and dying through the bite of living snakes were restored to life by looking at a lifeless bronze snake. So if you are bit, you look in faith to the serpent on a pole. But understand this, a father could not look for their, his son, a mother could not look for her daughter, a friend could not look for you, and a priest could not look for the whole community. Now, all fathers, mothers, friends, and priests could call on all sufferers to look. They couldn't do it for you, but they could say, look at the serpent, look at the serpent, lift it up, look and live. One writer, Elizabeth Webb, suggests that this passage tells us a lot, a whole lot about the character of God. And she writes this, even in our worst failures and disappointments, God provides. God offers healing for our wounds, relationship for our loneliness, and faithfulness for our faithlessness. God doesn't remove the sources of our suffering, but God makes the journey with us, providing what we most deeply need if we will look in the right direction. In the case we're unsure about that, the right direction is always looking to him. Look to him. You see, and I think I really want you to hear this. Sometimes God uses a snake or two to get us to stop trusting in ourselves. Sometimes God uses an accident. Other times God uses an illness, a broken relationship, even a death, in order to open our eyes to him. And all while these events I just listed, they're painful, they are good if God uses them to turn us towards himself. They're good. They're good. We have to believe that. And some of you are going, you don't get to define what's good. You're a stupid sinner. You don't get to define good. God does. And if he uses the things that we hate, the things that even hurt us, to make us look to him, then it's good. It's good. May we understand his goodness. God provides a cure for his people. So God punishes the sins of his people. God provides a cure for his people. But then let's look to Jesus. Number three, Jesus was lifted up for all people. Jesus was lifted up for all people. So the bronze serpent story that we just read in Numbers 21 does not just stand by itself in in, in biblical history. Jesus referenced this event in John 3 in a nighttime conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee who had come to Jesus at night and Jesus told Nicodemus that he along with all of us must be born again you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven and Nicodemus didn't understand it so Jesus tried to explain it to him even kind of mocking him in a in a sense I'm saying you're the teacher of Israel don't you understand this but Jesus then proclaimed that the son of man a reference to himself 
must be lifted up just like the bronze serpent. In fact, Jesus said this in John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then Jesus went on to say, For God so loved the world. So packed into these verses are several important ideas for us. First, we see how the original story is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would accomplish 1,400 years later at the cross. When Moses lifted up the bronze serpent for the people to see, he was providing a remedy for them to look at. Now, Jesus said he is going to be lifted up for a broader reaching recovery. In fact, in John 12, Jesus said, if the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus dies and everybody's saved. No, it means that Jesus being lifted up draws all kinds of people. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people to himself. Through his lifting up. The work done through the bronze serpent was temporary. They would die again. The work done through Jesus is permanent. It's permanent. Though we die, yet we live, and we live, and we live. Second, the word that is used in the Greek for lifted up is not this pedestrian picture of just like lifting up here or there. No, it means to exalt, to exalt. So Jesus is saying, in being lifted up, I will be exalted. I will be exalted. Not long after this encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus would be hanging on a cross, serving as the payment for your sin and my sin. Christ would be exalted before the nations and all who look to him live. For you see, don't miss this this morning, Jesus came into the world because the deadly venom flows through our veins too. The deadly venom flows through our veins too. It's called sin. Adam and Eve were snake bitten. And the venom that entered into them has been passed from generation to generation to generation to us. The venom of sin is deadly and is killing us. It is killing us. I think of the words of, of Nancy Guthrie who said, Jesus became what was killing us sin itself, when he was lifted up on the cross and thereby became the remedy for sin, Jesus became what was killing us. He became sin so that we might have life. On the cross, Jesus became the very embodiment of sin. He became the curse. He absorbed all the venom of sin. He absorbed all of the wrath of God. And Jesus became the only source of healing that if we look to him, we are saved. In the year 1666, what a terrible year. But in a year that the great fire of London wiped out the homes of 70,000 citizens. It said that the fire's blaze was so hot that it incinerated everything, even the outskirts of the city. Nothing re remained that was recognizable. Yet, the fire also did a good thing, and that it is believed to have stopped the Black Plague, which lasted for 300 years. And it stopped it by killing off all the diseased fleas, rats, and the people that carried the plague. Think about it. It took a greater death of fire to stop the, the death of the disease. 
In the same way, it has taken, in a, in a much greater way, it has taken the greater death of Jesus Christ to overcome the effects of our sin. He was burned and we live. And as we look to him, we are healed. We are truly healed. We are spiritually healed. We are healed by looking to him in faith as our substitute, as our cure. Have we looked to him this way? In 1850, Charles Spurgeon, who would become known as the Prince of Preachers, he was saved in 1850. And he tells the story of his salvation this way. I'm just going to read it in closing, and it's a little lengthy, but just follow with me here. He said, he, he, he writes, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair even now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. When I was going to a place of worship, when I was going to a place of worship, when I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed in, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up in the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 20, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began, thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the right hand of the Father. Look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes, he was at the, the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made about my personal appearance from the pulpit before. That might just work. So I might have to try it sometime. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon said, I saw at once the way of salvation. 
I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Brothers and sisters, all of us have been bitten by sin and we have felt the fire of its venom. All of us hear the, the hissing, hypnotizing allure of pleasure and idolatry that we hear so often around us. Yet in the midst of it all, there is hope. There is a cure. Lift your eyes to Jesus. And let me just say this. This isn't just for the unsaved in here. In Hebrews 12, the, the writer says this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's writing to save people. We keep looking. Don't stop looking. Have you stopped looking at him? Have you allowed your eyes to turn to yourself? There's no hope there. Look to him. Keep looking to him. If you've never looked to him for salvation, look to him today. If you've stopped looking to him as your hope and your help, look to him. In fact, as we sing oftentimes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace and the glorious face that we see in him. Turn your eyes to him. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand this morning. We're going to call the musicians forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, we just thank you for this amazing foreshadowing, this amazing type that we see in Numbers 21, pointing us, Jesus, to what you would do and have done for us at the cross. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here or will be here that doesn't know you, that today would be a day where they understand their sin, where they repent, they turn from their sin, they turn from trusting in themselves. And Jesus, they turn to you as their Savior and their Lord, as their cure. May today be a day of salvation, but also, Lord, I pray for believers, for children of God in this room. That not only do we look to you once for salvation, we continually fix our eyes upon you because you are the author and you are the perfecter of our faith. So you began it and you perfect it as we keep looking to you. Lord, help us not to look away from you with, with little faith, but help us to keep looking at you so that you might increase our faith, increase our trust, increase our hope in you, so that we can be confident calling others who have been bitten by the venom of sin to look to Jesus. I think of what someone in that day must have done who, who was bitten who looked up in faith and was healed and turned around and see someone else who had been bitten. Oh, how easy in that moment it must have been to say, look, 
Look there and be saved. Oh God, help us do the same in the world that we live. To point people to the one who has saved us. And not stop pointing them to you. Just finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.